teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thank you, Pastor. The question reads, does God still ask the church to worship together? And uh, I believe you have read Hebrews last time, which talks about not neglecting coming together. So based on the evidence here in Acts, and also that verse in Hebrews, you already know God still asks and commands his people to come together in prayer and worship, to hear his word, to receive his gifts. But... The uh, conundrum, the controversy, is does God specify any particular day as the day on which we must worship together? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? What else? That's the one I'm going for. Oh, okay. Well, good minds think alike. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What day is the Sabbath day. On what day did God rest? On the seventh day. So what is the, what's the name for the seventh day in our calendar? Saturday. Saturday. So um, we worship on Sunday, uh, not on the Sabbath. So are we violating the third commandment? Can someone please go ahead and look up Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, and read those for us when you have it? One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He regards one day as special, but does so too. Different people 
consider different days to be uh, better or holier than the other. But one of the key things that he says is each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then he continues, the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who's fully convinced in his mind. We know that the various ceremonial and civic laws of Israel were given to them for a time, and that Jesus didn't abolish the law but fulfilled it. The Ten Commandments are still in force though, right? But is the command to worship on a particular day, is that still Forced. Did Jesus tell the disciples, you still have to come together on Saturday? Does the New Testament give any indication of that specific command for a specific day? No. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to talk about here in Lincoln because we have uh, a large group of Seventh-day Adventists here, and even a Seventh-day Adventist college, where for them the most important doctrine and theology is that Saturday is supposed to be the day of worship. And the, the challenge with that is, is that ultimately it takes away from Christ. Uh, the reason we worship on Sunday is because it's the day Christ rose from the dead, and we're remembering that every single time so that our focus can be on Jesus. But if instead of Jesus crucified and risen being the most important theology, your most important doctrine is you need to worship on Saturday, that dims and darkens your view of Jesus ultimately, and that's the challenge. And so, I don't know, you guys probably know some Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, I don't mean me. I They don't eat meat at all, or just... Um, no, they're, they're very focused on a healthy lifestyle, and it's not required, but it is heavily recommended and endorsed that if you can, you should strive towards a vegetarian lifestyle, because among other things, that's how it was in the garden. So, so again, that takes away from the most important theology, which doesn't matter about your diet or, I mean, not to say you should just eat bacon and, you know, um, continue to grow like me, but the most important doctrine is not any of these periphery things, but it is Christ crucified risen, and that's the thing that needs to be emphasized above all others. Sorry for interrupting you. Oh, no, you're just, you're just jumping the gun. I think you pretty much just took care of day four for us. <laughs> Judaizers and those who say 
you have to keep the whole entirety of the law, not just the Ten Commandments and the moral precepts that are for everyone, but you have to circumcise, you have to observe the Sabbath, you have to uh, hold the holy days that we're learning about in order to really be Christian. Again, since Christ has come, he's fulfilled all things. So the things that were temporary and foreshadowed, are we obligated to hold on to them now? They had, they had the foreshadow. They had the preview. In Christ, we have the reality, the substance, because Christ has come. And so Paul here is exasperated because he's saying, you know, if some of you hold to these things, you know, have I done everything in vain? You know, uh, I've taught you the gospel, and we've gone over this over and over and over. You can see how Paul can be a little uh, exasperated. Exasperated enough that the uh, Holy Spirit inspired him to write about it. So, putting together Romans 14, let everyone be convinced in his own mind, and also what we just learned in Galatians. Is there any particular day of the week that we have to, capital H, have to worship on? No. We're getting to your question here about when did, when did the transition happen? 17 uh, addresses that. Why then have most Christian churches chosen to worship together, especially on Sunday? All right, let's do this a little rapid fire, shall we? If I could have someone look up Luke 24, 1 through 2, John 20, 19 through 20, and then Acts 20, verse 7. And we'll read them in the order that they're printed there, Luke, John, and then Acts. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And he found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Thank you. Acts 24, 18, 20. John 20, 19. So the transition happened in the time of the apostles 
And as early as the second century, a uh, Christian by the name of Justin Martyr, writing his apology or his defense of the Christian faith to, I believe it was the Roman emperor. Yeah. He mentioned that it was their custom to gather together on the day they call Sunday or Saturn's day, you know, on Sunday, which they, the Christians, called the Lord's Day, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets would be read, and then the preacher would exhort them and teach them, and then they would gather together the gifts, and they would bring up bread and wine, and the presider would pray over them, and then the bread and the wine were distributed to everybody who was present there. So even in the second century, the early 100s, and this is just one example of the earliest church, you know, immediately post-apostles after the last apostle had died, evidence of them gathering together on Sunday because it is the day of the Lord's resurrection. And that's just one example. There's many, many other examples from 100 to before the first council of Nicaea in 325 of Christians explaining the importance of gathering together on the day of the resurrection and that the day of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ who is our Sabbath rest. And so we honor, we honor God by worshiping on the day that Christ rose from the dead and we ourselves entered into our Sabbath rest. Yes. I think it's worth pointing out how big a deal that is. It was this is before the the time when weekends were invented, and so Sunday is a work day. So you would get up at four in the morning and go to church, and you'd have your church service, which would be longer than ours even today. You would gather and you'd have church, and then you would go after that off to your job and do your work from, you know, daylight to sunset. Uh, and so it's really a big thing. It's, we have the day off, right? Uh, most of us. And yet sometimes we think to ourselves, it would be really nice to sleep in. Even pastors, right? I, I can't speak for vicars, but, uh, you know, it would be really nice to sleep in this day. It's, I don't have to go to work. And yet the ancient church, they got up and went to church on Sunday and then still had to go to work after that and do their normal day's work. And I think it just shows you the dedication and uh, uh, importance of it in their minds in the very early days. So, sorry for... No, no. Uh, to follow up on that, I'm not remembering the name off the top of my head, but it was a uh, writing within the Roman government complaining about the Christians. And he was said they would gather together on Sunday before the sun rose and they would worship Christ and sing hymns to Christ as to a God and then they would pledge to each other to do no wrong and do no evil and then they would return and do their jobs and then after the jobs were done they would come back and they would gather again and they would have a meal now does that necessarily mean that they did you know the service of the word before sunrise and went to work and then afterwards came together and had the sacrament? I mean, there's some there's some room for debate because when your religion is technically not legal and you're having to work around other structures, you know things might be a little inconsistent. And also, what he said when the services were much longer, some of the earliest uh, extant liturgical writings that we have that meet the granted after Christianity was legalized, but some of the services, when you add up all the different parts, would go on for, you know, four to six hours, just kind of going. So there was a strong level of dedication, and it wasn't until I believe it was Constantine who made uh, who made Sunday a holy day because the only days in the ancient world you really got off were holy days where you go sacrifice to the gods and so he instituted Sunday to be a weekly 
holy day, and then by the time the empire was officially made a Christian state under Theodosius, uh, it became a regular weekly day of rest, akin, again, to the Sabbath, but understanding that our Sabbath rest is in Christ, and it would also make good sense to allow people to go to church and not have to worry about, you know, missing for lots of work. Now, that doesn't mean if we miss church because of work that we're sinning, but it's, it's a nice thing that we kind of uh, helped create the weekend, so... Good on, good on the church. So, yes. Well, what you talked about the ancient times. What did the Jews do if your Sunday was considered a holy day? Because the Jews believed that Saturday was Saturday, and they didn't do anything. They didn't even cook on those days. Right. So, um, in terms of like having the day off that we're talking about, well, after. After Christianity became the legal religion of the Roman Empire and it became assumed and mandatory to be a Christian and state level of persecution of those who practiced Judaism kind of went on the increase, things got a little touch and go for them. But earlier on, the so Christians got in trouble for not offering incense to the emperor, right? Yeah, they, they didn't worship the gods. They didn't worship the emperor. The Jewish people, however, did not get in trouble because in ancient times, as in today, there was the idea of if something is of antiquity, if it has a long-established tradition, then it must be true, or at least it should be respected. And so the Jewish people received an exemption from the pagan Roman emperors that they didn't have to sacrifice to the gods, they didn't have to, they didn't have to observe all the different things, and also that their Sabbath, they could have the day off. So if they were in the military or they were doing something for the government, they got the day off because the Jewish people had that agreement with the Roman emperor. All they had to do was promise to uh, pray and occasionally offer a sacrifice to their God, the true God, but they had to offer a sacrifice for the peace and benefit of the empire. So does that answer your question a bit? So pre-legalization pre of Christianity, they got the day off just fine. Post-legalization of Christianity, once state persecution of the Jewish faith went on the rise, it was a lot more touch and go. So that clears up things a bit. Pre-Christ, the, the Jews had all these rules, right? We talked somewhat about some of them. Leviticus yes. about what was work and what wasn't work. Mm -hmm. Because in agrarian society, you know, I met many farmers over the years who, you know, if it rained a lot, he needed to get out in the field on the first dry day, and it happened to be Sunday. He was in the field. Yeah. Christ Christ addresses this in a way when there's the Pharisees are debating him about the nature of the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath. And he even tells them, if you know, if your son or your donkey or your cart falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, you don't let it stay there. You go and you, you pick it up, and you know, and you let that happen, and you say that that's okay. Granted, the scripture said it was okay, but the point being is they were making mountains out of molehills and applying the term work to all sorts of things that really were, they were so focused on keeping the letter of the law that they forgot and they ignored the spirit of the law. So does that answer, getting back around, does yeah. that answer your question about the transition from Saturday to Sunday? Yeah. 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 And, and throughout church history, uh, there would be uh, 
groups of people that would say, no, we need to go back and we have to uh, observe Saturday worship in order to be truly Christian, or we got to do this, you know, because it's in, in the Bible. So using the uh, example of the Seventh-day Adventists who came about in the 1800s, they are by no means the first group of Christians to break away and insist on observing the law as a kind of perennial issue within the history of the church. Bless you. All right. Any other questions thus far? Okay. Yes. Are there any other groups that do that? Like I was just wondering. What yeah, did Jehovah's yes, Witnesses there are, do? There are other, there are are other so groups. Specific. Um, I can't name them all off the top of my head. They can broadly be categorized under the term Sabbatarian. Uh, you know, those who keep the Sabbath. Um, in American history, uh, it was a, there was a big Sabbatarian movement. Uh, so the Seventh-day Adventists, they're a big one because it's in their name. Uh, and then also, too, there are other, there are other um, churches, some smaller Pentecostal or holiness churches, church groups, observe the Sabbath. Some of the bigger, uh, one of the bigger ones you might know are the Jehovah's Witnesses, which well, that's what I was they, are not, they are not Orthodox Christians. They are, you know, they're not Christian in that. But they, one of their big insistences was we have to observe the Sabbath. Um, there are some, there are some groups of Baptists that do, I mean, Orthodox. you can, what? Some Orthodox do, yeah, yeah. Orthodox Christian, Orthodox Greek. Oh, Greek, word, yes, yes. So, I mean, really, you can look at the whole gamut of Christianity, even when we're talking about Orthodox Christians who believe in Christ and accept the Trinity and can say the creeds without crossing their fingers, even within the bounds of those, there are movements and groups of people who insist. Now, some of them, they may not insist on it so strongly that they, they break away and start their own church, but there are some who say, well, you know, it's okay and it's good to do things on Sunday, but a more perfect way, a more better way to be a Christian is to do this, i.e., you know, remembering Jesus' command and admonition, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, those who elevate a law or an observance, especially a man-made one or one that is no longer in force, above and beyond Christ dying and rising again for your justification. Okay. Did you want to... Because there's probably like 50 different little tiny small churches from, I think, like the Strangeite sect of uh, Mormonism to, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of them. Well, I was just wondering specifically about Jehovah Witnesses because they're such buzz skills. So I figured they were, you know, down. Yeah. Right. No birthdays or no nothing. This is it. There's no other way. Right. Yes. So, I mean. Just curious. Yep. So, you name it. There's probably somebody out there that's trying to do it. So, we're moving on to day five. So, question 18. When do we sin against this? Know, it's kind of weird grammatically. When do we sin against the third commandment? So, uh, for most of us, we might need to think back to our catechism days. We got a few catechism kids here, so maybe they can help jog. But the third commandment, as we learn it in the catechism, honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and 
gladly hear and learn it. There you go. So, the third commandment. We do not want to despise or reject preaching and his word, but we want to hold it and gladly hear and learn it. So, can you still go to church on Sunday and Wednesday and every day in Holy Week? Can you still go to all the church services offered and break the third commandment? Yeah, because you can go to church every single day, but if you despise or reject the word, then you are breaking the essence of what the Sabbath is for. But rather, we should hear God's word, gladly learn it, and hold it in our hearts. Um, let's see here. Would someone like to read John chapter 8, verse 47? You who belong to God, hear what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Thank you. And if someone can please read Luke 10, verse 16.
to receive the word and not just in the, the sermon and in the liturgy and in the hymns, but now as Christians, God also attaches his word to bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. He attaches his word to water, and we remember that, and we're washed in that uh, here. And so it's all about the word so that God can give the word to us. That's the whole purpose of the Sabbath day. And then, I mean, we talked a little bit about it. That's what the issue is with churches who say, well, we have to worship on Saturday because it's no longer about Christ and his word. It's about what am I doing on this day? How much work am I doing? And, and when we start to get into those issues, then we're taking away from the office of Jesus. So I, I didn't mean to interrupt you again, but... No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the Sabbath day in terms of getting together as church whether it is on Sunday or Wednesday. It's about hearing that word and the Spirit working through that word to give us faith. And so when we put something above that, we are, as it were, saying that we, we need to do something else or we have another way to make sure that make sure that we're doing things correctly when God gives everything to us as a gift. Does that make sense? Okay. And then question 19. What does God ask of us in the third commandment? I feel like we've been reviewing this pretty, pretty in depth here, but let's just let's hammer away. Isaiah 66 verse 2. If someone would like to read that. You know, God has this tendency of repeating things throughout the Bible. It's almost like he's consistent. It's almost like we need to hear something over and over again because, you know, we're a little thick-skulled and stubborn-hearted. <laughs> Repetition is the mother of learning. That's a Russian proverb. Well, it's a, it's a good proverb wherever it came from. <laughs> Isaiah 66, verse 2. Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Thank you. My pages would not stick together on my Bible. That would be appreciated. So, all these things my hand has made. But this is the one to whom I will look to. He who is humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. I, uh, I preached a little bit about this last night, talking about the power of the word, that it does what it says. And we know that it's through the word and the spirit that's attached to that word that creates faith. And so the word made all things, the word made you. And by his word, God creates faith in you. And so when it says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, what does that sound like to you? That he's listening? It sounds like faith. Can a person, by their own reason or strength, Believe in Jesus Christ or come to Him as their Lord? I might have butchered that a little. But you get what I'm saying. Can anybody apart from the Spirit repent of their sins and believe in Christ? Can anybody apart from faith tremble at God's Word? Listen to it. Receive it. Because the whole point of Scripture is to point us to Christ. So the one who's humble and contrite in heart is the one who acknowledges their sin, confesses it, and believes on Christ for their forgiveness. Again, God's very consistent. He does not change. He works the same way 
throughout all time. He works through his word to give faith. And that faith grasps on to Jesus. And that's the whole point of, as Pastor said, why God set apart the Sabbath for Israel and why we still come together as the church to receive God's gifts through his word. Written, preached, attached to bread and wine, or attached to water in baptism. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we thank God continually because when we receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, we accept it not as the word of man, but as the actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe it. Thank you. Yeah, it makes it very clear. We receive the word of God, which you heard from us. Paul is talking about himself and those who were with him who were preaching. So you hear the word from your pastors and you receive it not as their word, as their opinion, as very nice, pious, poetic words, but as the word of God, which is at work in you. And what is the end goal of faith? Do you believe it? Salvation. Salvation. Eternal life in Christ. And does the word do what it says it's going to do? Does the word actually do something? It must. Why must it? Because God said it would. God said it would, exactly. So if you don't have, the word does its job no matter what. And the word works through law and gospel, right? The law is to reveal and condemn our sins, and that drives us to Christ and the good news of salvation in Him through His death and resurrection, right? So. When the word works faith in a person's heart, and they grasp onto that, it's working for them in a positive direction, right? Right, towards, towards eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, we also heard recently the parable of the sower who casts a seed, and some seed falls on rocky ground, and some seed is you know, grows up and is choked by thorns or eaten away by birds. So when a person hears the word of God, hears that they are a sinner, hear that Christ has died for them, and they don't receive it as the word of God. They don't have faith. Is the word not working? Is it useless? No. The Word is still doing its work. But the Word doesn't have any positive effect. If someone doesn't have faith, and that faith that, you know, that trusts and holds on to God's promises, are God's promises going to do, are the God's promises going to do any good for them if they don't believe in it? No. Yes. You can almost go with the was it the sermon last week about the seed falling on the different Yeah. And exactly. Exactly. It just tied right into the sermon. It, it it does. It does. It's like God is uh logical and the Bible is interconnected. Who'd have thought? So and so the word, if you don't receive it as a believer as someone who has faith, the word still works. It just works in a condemning manner because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, you're not united to Jesus. And without Jesus, you have nothing. This question, question chapter 20, before we go on, any other questions, comments, 
concerns? Colossians 3.16. This is a very uh, well-written question, I think. And I mean, obviously, the Bible is well-written, so good on, good on the Lord. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thank you. So this question, kind of like a statement, but also a question, it talks about public worship and it talks about the three dimensions or the directions that worship goes in. So let's let's break this down. So Colossians 3.16. Uh, there it goes. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, stop there. How does the word dwell in you? How does the word of Christ come to you? By hearing it, right? And who, who's reading the scriptures and preaching about it? The pastor. And who wrote down the words of the Bible back in the day? The, the apostles or whoever wrote them. And who inspired the authors? The Holy Spirit, God. So, the word of Christ, ultimately, going back through the chain, where does the word come from? God. So is it something you do? Is it something you make up? Do you kind of do a pep rally and be like, you know, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith. Or does it come outside you? Outside you. We have a theological term for that. Extra nos. Extra, like it's spelled N-O-S. Outside of you. So the word dwells in you richly because who gives you the word? God gives you the word. So the first direction is from who to who? From God to us. Right, so from God to us, from heaven to earth, you know, up to down, however you want to you know, whatever image you want to use. And then it says here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and spirit and hymns and spiritual songs. Stop. Teaching and admonishing one another. Your pastors are called to preach and teach the word of God. Correct? And they do that. And so that's part of the teaching and admonishing. But also it talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So who are so who's the pastor talking to in the church service? You. And when you are singing the songs and the hymns and the spiritual songs. Who are you singing to? You're, you are singing to God, but think about in the context of this part of the verse, admonishing one another. Each other. To each other. I mean, how many of you remember growing up either from church or at your parents' knee before bedtime, remember the hymns that you grew up singing or when you went to bed or you weren't feeling well, your parents or your grandparents or whatever would sing like a hymn to like Amazing Grace or whatever their song was. Do any of you have memories of that at all? They <laughs> But, 
People remember the songs of their youth. There are plenty of people that when I was in when I was at the seminary before I came here, that when I would go to visit them, their memory wasn't the greatest. It was hard to track with them and keep up a conversation. But if we started saying certain prayers or Bible verses or hymns that they grew up with, they knew. And so the direction that we're talking about here, admonishing and teaching one another, because during the time of the Reformation, when Martin Luther and the Reformers were writing hymns for the people, what was one of the most important things in their hymn writing? To praise God. To praise God, but also include scripture. Include scripture. Right. The hymns, the hymns teach. The hymns teach. Songs can teach us things. They've done some studies that show that if you hear a song long enough, it activates two different parts of your brain, and so it's stored in two different parts of your memory, in two parts of your brain. And, you know, to give an analogy, someone can say to their spouse, or if they're, you know, younger and courting to whoever they're dating, you know, I love you. This is great. Valentine's Day is coming, right? I, I, I tell my wife, love you. That's nice, right? But songs, words that are set to music, they, they have a different way of conveying the, the content. You can hear something, but you can also hear it to music, to song, and it, it just hits you in a different way, and it sticks with you in a different way. Yes? I think we see it when we recite the introit and the gradual as well. Yeah. They're usually parts of songs. Right, and, and if you look if you look in your hymnal at an LSB at the bottom of your hymns, it'll say various, uh, it'll give you various Bible verses that the hymn was either inspired or based on, or that also work with that particular scripture reading. So, um, I haven't really seen many modern churches, but in some older churches, especially like old uh, abbey churches or old monasteries, when they when they built the sanctuary area, the they didn't really have pews, but they had stalls where you would go in, like you know, a choir stall where the choir would sit, and they would they would be facing each other, and that's where the that's partially where the idea of the antiphon of singing back and forth, responsive singing came from, because you're admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, the word comes to us first from God, right? That's the first direction of worship. And then, in the context of being the body of Christ together, we're teaching and encouraging one another by singing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And not that there's a law that you have to sing in church. God doesn't, you know, you know, say, strictly speaking, that you always have to sing. If you're not feeling good, don't sing. Or if you're, you know, just trying to learn the song, then that's okay to listen. But there's something about worshiping together and singing that God does say. Because does, at the end of the day, does God really absolutely need you to sing to him to make him feel good about himself? No. Did God need all those bulls and lambs and birds and everything else that was sacrificed to him? No. But does your neighbor in Christ, your brother and sister in Christ, do they need the encouragement? Do they need the uh, exhortation? when you sing together. And often, when you're singing, whether it's directly from the Bible or it's a hymn that is good, uh, that is based on the Bible in a good way, 
Do they need that kind of encouragement? Right. There have been plenty of times where I have just been having a down day, because we all have them. And I go to church, and it's not necessarily one person's voice, but it's just a, it's a good old solid hymn that's sung by everybody, and it's, it's scriptural and it's beautiful. It, it raises the heart a little. And that's good because we're called to love one another. And one of the best ways we can love one another is to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Because at the end of the day, heaven is pictured as an eternal, beautiful liturgy where we're all together praising God. So it's good practice for that too. And then finally, the last part of verse 16, uh, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we've talked about the word of Christ dwelling richly in us is from God to us. And when we are singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're admonish admonishing and teaching and encouraging one another, right? And then with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So the final direction is from yeah, from us, from us to God. So there is an aspect of our worship that is from us to God. We do offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, but as the old Lutheran worship hymnal put it, now I'm going to burst I'm going to butcher his beautiful words. But basically what it amounts to is worship is not primarily us offering sacrifices to God first and foremost. It's first and foremost God giving us gifts and in thankful response to God we offer our sacrifices of worship and praise, which again our songs are directed to Him and that's good, but also our faith, the faith that we have been given, reaches out and grasps on to Him. And faith is the highest form of worship and thanksgiving that we can express to God. So there's a certain, there's a certain rhythm, there's a certain dynamism every time we come together in worship. It's like a wonderful orchestra or a wonderful, I don't know, whatever other analogy you want to use that's about some sort of coordinated effort. God gives us his gifts. God gives us his forgiveness. Our hearts are given faith by the word of Christ. And we encourage one another as we hear the word, we sing the word to each other. And then in thankfulness and praise, we offer our prayers, we offer the best we can give as a sacrifice of praise to God for everything He's done for us in Christ. The final quote-unquote challenge question here. How might we increase our understanding of worship and encourage people to join us in the weekly divine service and indeed our worship of God daily? I can give you a hint. You're kind of, one of the ways you can do that is something you're doing right now. Yeah, you're studying the Word. And increase our understanding of worship uh, for the past month or a couple of months. We've been having a Bible study on Sunday about the history and theology of worship in the Bible and as that translates into what we do in the divine service. So what it amounts to is get into the Word, understand the beauty and the joy of what God gives us when we come together and we receive His Word. And then the Word will create faith, and there'll be opportunities in your life where you can just 
talk to people, invite them, the opportunities will present themselves. There's no doubt. Let us close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive